Last week, church, we began a a new sermon series entitled The Politics of the Kingdom, where we were looking at some of the the values and, and, and policies, if you will, of the kingdom of God as we find them in the scriptures. And the purpose of this series is that between now and and the elections that are coming up on November the 3rd, and and hopefully beyond that, throughout all the rest of our lives, that we as Christians would challenge ourselves to think really critically about how the values of the kingdom of God and of our citizenship of that kingdom as baptized believers should shape and form our political Uh, imagination and engagement in this world as citizens of this country. Now, last week we acknowledged that that wading into anything of a political nature at, at any time in life, but particularly in the midst of an election year, is to enter into potentially divisive and controversial waters. And while my desire is not in any way to be controversial. That's not what I'm after here. And in fact, I don't believe that anything I say in this series should be considered controversial. But still, I think the question is worth asking and answering, why would we do this? Why even risk it, right? Is this really an appropriate realm for the church to engage? And to answer that question, I want to ask you another question that I believe illustrates powerfully why a series like this is not only helpful, but ultimately necessary and and essential in the life of a church. And that question is this, what are the three most taboo topics that you could possibly talk about in public? I I want someone to to unmute your mic and and, and tell me what you think is is the answer to that. These These are pretty much universally agreed upon. What are the three most inappropriate topics of discussion that you could possibly bring up in conversation. Somebody unmute yourselves and, and, and share with us what you think. Money, politics, and sex. Money, politics, and sex. That's good. That's good. Uh, religion. And religion. There you go. Thank you for those. Listen, according to multiple sites on Google, the three most taboo Topics for public conversation are money, religion, and politics. And if you added in a fourth, it would be sex, right? Now, now what do all of those issues have in common? Why are they so off limits for discussion? The common answer would be that, that all of those are, are private matters and, and are personal in nature. And there's truth to that, but I believe that there's more going on in that equation than it's just a private matter. And what I would posit is that the reason that we can't talk about these issues with other people and and the reason that we view them as as private matters is because ultimately we've allowed them to become issues of the heart. These are areas of worship and idolatry in our lives that have have become like sacred cows for us, right? We, We love them and we hold our views on them as so central to our lives that we've decided that they cannot be challenged in any way. Now, it's obvious how faith or religion falls into that category, and and rightfully it should, right? It should be a matter of worship. But let's think about the others really briefly. Think about money. Money's always been an uncomfortable topic for discussion. Yet Jesus never shied away from talking about money. He waded into those uncomfortable waters and engaged people around issues of money as much as he did any other topic. And what did he have to say about it? 
that you need to guard your heart from loving it. He likened money to a master. And he warned us about loving and being devoted to our money above our love and devotion to God. He said that it becomes like a rival and that you cannot serve both God and money. It easily becomes an idol of our heart. And so so Jesus tells us to be on guard against that. And there's the exact same danger about politics. That's really what our sermon last week was all about. The disciple-making, worship-forming nature of politics. If you missed it, I really want to encourage you to go back online and listen to it because it gives a a framework for for why we are doing what we are doing in this series. And it it really tries to, to explain and tease out the religious nature of our political engagement. And so what I would argue is that anything that rises to the level of something that we can't talk about with others is ultimately an issue that we must talk about within the community of the church. Because if it's an issue that we don't feel comfortable engaging with others, it's likely become an issue of the heart and a problem of idolatry in our lives that needs to be addressed. And so ultimately, politics, along with our finances, along with our sexuality, it's an issue of discipleship. And it's an issue of our faithful witness in the world. And so it must be addressed. It can't remain a sacred cow. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to be engaging the issues of of our political engagement in the world by focusing on the the political values of the kingdom of God as we find them in the scriptures. In order to avoid any partisan political engagement of any kind, we're focusing on general principles here rather than specific policies. So so this should have an impact on, on all shades of the political spectrum, no matter where your affiliations lie. Everyone should have some level of conviction and challenge in the things that we talk about. And so for the next several weeks, I as a preacher am going to raise values of the kingdom of God and, and challenge us all as disciples to figure out how those kingdom principles work their way into our worldly political engagement. That's the, that's the hard work of living out our faith that we're all going to need to do on our own. In the end, faithful Christians can and, and will come to differing opinions on the best way to apply kingdom principles in our worldly politics, and that's okay. But we should be able to talk about and engage on and even disagree agreeably with one another about all of this, rooting our reasons for whatever convictions we come to back into biblical and kingdom of God-centered principles so that there's integrity in our Christian discipleship and unity in our Christian witness to the world. Does that make sense? That's what we're after. And so this morning we are beginning with with what I believe is the first and the most foundational and the most central politic of the kingdom of God that we can find in the scriptures. And that is this, that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of life. The kingdom of God is all about life. And I believe that when we look at the scriptures, what we see is that, is that this value of life it is a principle and a passion and a project of Jesus's from the very beginning of the story to the very end of it. That it is literally what Jesus and his kingdom are all about. So let's consider that together. In our Old Testament reading this morning from Genesis chapter 2, which is the, the, the second and the more detailed and descriptive version of the creation account, 
What we read was that the first gift that God gave to the world was life. After the heavens and the earth were created, before the bushes of the fields and the small plants had sprung up from the ground, when there was no life on earth, God gave the gift of life to his creation. He formed a man from the dust of the earth, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living, breathing creature. In Genesis chapter 1, which is the other creation account, we're told about all of the other things that God gave life to as well. Living creatures that swarm in the waters, birds that fly above the earth, livestock and creeping things and the beasts of the earth. Everything that has the breath of life in it was made by God. The first and most foundational gift that God gave to any of us was life. And that continues to be true to this day. But when Adam and Eve lay together and had their first child, the first child born into the world, Eve recognized that it it was nothing that she had done to bring forth life, but she declared that with the help of God, I have gotten a man. The first life and, and every subsequent life that's ever been created, your life and my life, all life is a gift from God. He is the one who formed your inner parts and knit you together in your mother's womb. He is the one who made you in secret, who intricately wove you together in the depths. He is the one who created you fearfully and wonderfully. He is the one who breathes the breath of life into you. God is the giver of all life. And he's the sustainer of all life as well. This is a profound truth that I think we rarely ever focus on. But I believe it has significant implications for the the outworking of this kingdom value of life in the politics of our world. We call Genesis 1 and 2 creation accounts, and they are. But in those passages, God doesn't just create life, but he provided the means for its ongoing care and continuation as well. For after he created life and gave the breath of life in both Genesis 1 and 2, what we're told is that then God planted a garden. And he gave trees that produced food for his creatures to eat in order to sustain them. And he gave to his creation the the tree of life, which was intended to maintain and to continue the life that he had created forever. God loves and values the life that he created so much that he works and he provides for it in order to sustain it. This truth of God as the sustainer is affirmed in the New Testament as well. In Colossians chapter 1, we're taught that by Jesus all things were made and that in him all things hold together. Jesus not only gave life, but he sustains life. To demonstrate this reality, I want to do a little experiment with you. For the next minute, I want you to make yourself breathe, (laughs) okay? Focus on your breathing right now. Make yourself breathe steadily and naturally, and repeatedly, and consistently, and with ease. Is there anyone that's short of breath already? It's almost impossible to do, isn't it? Every time I think about my breathing and and try to breathe, what is otherwise so natural and easy suddenly becomes incredibly difficult and hard to maintain. It's laborsome. No one ever thinks about their lungs breathing or their heart beating. These things that sustain us. 
until that function is either focused on or threatened in some way. Otherwise, we simply take for granted that it happens. We go throughout our day and lie down in bed at night without giving a second thought to how am I going to sustain my breathing or the beating of my heart. Yet every morning we wake up and we've been sustained in these vital functions throughout the night when we're not even conscious of what's going on around us. Jesus is sustaining us in every way. So God creates life and he sustains life. But that's not all because he he doesn't just want us to exist. He, He doesn't want us merely to live and to survive. But Jesus' desire is that we would flourish in the life that he has given to us and sustains for us. That's what we heard in our gospel lesson from John chapter 10. Jesus said that the reason that he came into this world was not only that we might have life, but that we might have it abundantly. His desire is more than survival. He's after thriving and flourishing. In one translation, it describes this this life as life that's to the full. Later in the Bible, Paul describes this type of life that Jesus came to give as a life that is truly life, a life that's actually worth living, the real thing that God always intended for us. It's a life of meaning and significance and value and love and peace and joy and every other good adjective that you can think of. In the message, the late Eugene Peterson described this type of life as a life that is more and better life than you've ever dreamed of. Total flourishing in its absolute fullness. This is why Jesus came. This is God's heart for you and for everyone that he's given life to and sustained life for. He wants us to flourish and to have life in abundance. So we see that throughout the scriptures, in these and in many other places, is that God loves life. He created life. He works to sustain life. He came into the world in the person of Jesus in order that we might experience life the way that it was intended to be experienced fully and abundantly. The point is this. God is all about life. It is the first and foundational and really the primary value of his kingdom. And the reason that that this is important for us to to be reminded of and, and to know and to understand and to be convinced of and to think deeply about is because we also see in the scriptures that there is another kingdom at work in the world that is always in opposition to the kingdom of God and its value of life. And we need to be aware of it so that we don't end up unthinkingly being a part of it. For right after God created life in Genesis 1 and 2, in the very next chapter, God's enemy, who is the king of God's rival kingdom, disguised himself as a serpent, entered into creation, and by twisting words and telling half-truths, deceived humanity and led them astray, so that they no longer experienced flourishing and life, but shame and death. And throughout the rest of the story, of which we are still a part to this day, this rival king and the servants of his kingdom continue this destructive work. They continue to disguise themselves, often as servants of righteousness, Paul says. And they continue to deceive people, twisting God's words and telling half-truths, declaring what is good, evil, and what is evil, 
good. Leading people astray to embrace things that lead to shame and death and not to flourishing life. In our gospel reading, this rival king was described as a thief who comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He hates God and God's kingdom and the values of God's kingdom so much that he wants to do whatever he can to destroy them. And so he and his servants sow disbelief and distrust that cause people to doubt the goodness of God and cause them to make light of the values of his kingdom and lead people away from the flourishing life that they were created for. This dynamic is constantly at play in our world. And I wonder if you've ever considered how many of the political issues of our day are infused by these faith values of flourishing in life versus shame and death. Have you thought about how often these values are at play in the political issues of our world? There are obvious ones, like abortion and gun control, how we think about war, the death penalty. Those are topics that obviously deal with life and death issues. But then there are also many, so many other issues that, that may be less obvious but still have implications for the creating and sustaining and flourishing of life in this world. Think about that things like affordable and, and accessible health care and, and medication, from, from prenatal care to end-of-life care, access to, to quality education and meaningful employment opportunities. Those both have a profound impact on the flourishing of someone's life. There are politically and culturally sensitive issues such as as gender and sexuality and marriage that all pertain to the creating and sustaining and flourishing of life. We could talk about policing and incarceration, immigration, asylum for refugees who are seeking a safe place to live, taxes and the distribution of wealth, care for the poor and impoverished, environmental policies and planet care, Freedom of speech, freedom of religious, religion, the issues of, of which lives matter, right? Black lives matter, and blue lives matter, and all lives matter. All of these issues and many more are, are touched by this kingdom value of life and flourishing. And please hear me. I'm not suggesting that there are easy and straightforward answers for, for all of these. But we live in a complicated world where there are limited resources and competing values to consider. And I understand the challenges in that. What you decide to think on all of these issues and and how you decide to engage or support them is the hard work of living out your faith that you get to do. And I'd love the opportunity to sit down and talk with you and, and think and process about any of these things with any of you individually. But collectively, what I want to do is to call us all to see and to consider that the values of flourishing and life and the values of shame and death are intricately tied into so much of our political life. And the question that I would challenge you with is this. Is your faith guiding your politics to where you are supporting life and flourishing in all of the ways that you can support it? Or has your faith been co-opted by politics to the point where you are unknowingly or unthinkingly supporting issues and policies that lead to shame and death. And the reason that this should matter to us, the reason that we should think critically about these kinds of issues and take seriously the value of life and flourishing in all things, 
is because God has taken them ultimately seriously. Jesus said that he came and not in order that we might have life and have it to the full. It's the very reason that he came to this earth. And when the abundant life that he desired for us was threatened by a rival kingdom and its values of shame and death, we're told that like a good shepherd, Jesus stepped in to protect his sheep. He laid down his life for his sheep. Jesus took our shame that prohibited our flourishing in life. He took it upon himself. He bore it in his own body upon the cross so that we wouldn't have to, that we could be free from it. And Jesus died our death that was robbing from us life. He died in our place and offered us his his life in return. So that now, even when we die, we live. Jesus cares about this value of life and flourishing so much that he abandoned his life in order that we might find abundance in ours. Now, ultimately, that abundant life that Jesus speaks of only comes through a life lived in surrender to and in relationship with Jesus. But everything else that we've talked about today plays into that abundance and flourishing of our lives as well. Jesus gave everything in order that we might have life and have it to the full. And we're called to follow him in giving away ourselves and our own rights and our own comforts and our own privileges and our own lives for the flourishing of others. And church, the good news that we heard in our New Testament reading today is that in the end, flourishing in life wins over shame and death. In Revelation 21 and 22, we're given a glimpse into the future When the old ways of our world have passed away and God creates a new heaven and a new earth and the throne of heaven, and from the throne of heaven, Jesus proclaims that all things are new and that there's no more mourning or crying or pain or shame or death. Instead, those things have passed away. And in their place, creation is restored and renewed to its perfect intended state where the river of life waters the tree of life, which provides healing and life to the nations. And where shame and death are gone forever. Church, I don't know about you, but I want to be on the side that wins. In every way that is possible, I want to be on the side that wins. The kingdom of God is all about life. Creating it, sustaining it, redeeming it, and causing it to flourish in abundance. The kingdom of God is all about life. And we as its citizens should be also. I want to end this morning with just a a little exhortation, a little reminder that we know, but we just need to remember. Church, life is precious. Life is really precious. We so often take it for granted, but life is precious. Within the life of our church, I know of a couple of situations that went on this week where the certainty of life, which we so often take for granted, was was questioned. There were some small COVID concerns that, praise be to God, have turned out okay. And there was a concern about potential cancer in someone's life that, praise be to God, is turning out okay. In our own home, Lindsay's father has had major heart surgery and is fighting for life to recover. And so often we forget about how precious life is until we're We're not sure if we'll have it anymore. And as hard as those moments are, what they remind us 
is that life is a good and a precious gift. That every life that God has made has infinite value in his eyes and is worth doing whatever we can to protect it and to sustain it and to give it every possible opportunity to flourish. Being reminded of that, let us be a people who champion the cause of life in every way that we can in this world to the glory of God and to the good of his creation. Amen.